For our Advent service, we're going to begin in Philippians and Philippians chapter 2. So grab your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2, if you will. And we'll start from verses 1 through 11. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only out for your own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, as we enter into this season where we anticipate the celebration of your first advent Jesus we ask and we pray that we would have our minds focused on you it is a season Lord of many distractions most of them are well intended some of them not but nevertheless Lord we are a people who are easily distracted it doesn't just have to be shiny objects Lord it can be Plans and it can be pursuits and it can be TV shows and it can be presents and it can even be good things of wanting to spend time with our family. But Lord, may all of these things that can serve as distractions for us instead point us forward and motivate us to worship you, Jesus, and give you all of the glory and honor and praise that is due your name. And as we begin this series, we ask that this would be the catalyst for just that throughout the rest of this month. Lord, we ask these things in your precious son's name. Amen. Amen. I'm starting in watching uh, this television show. um, And it's called The Chef Show. And it's got the one famous guy, John Faribault, and he goes around with his chef pal, and they go all over the place and talk about stuff and things and food and whatnot. 
And I kind of like to cook and I really like to eat food. So I'm watching this show. One of the things that uh, came up, though, as they were talking about their particular joys and likes of taco trucks or food trucks was that there's something (coughs) that comes with the experience of going to one of these trucks. It isn't just getting the food and eating the food, but there's something that comes with the anticipation that goes along with that event that's about to come or the thing that's about to happen. It's why people will sit in big long lines outside these things and wait for hours to get a burrito or to get tacos or to get a big fat sandwich or something along those lines. There's something in anticipation that we as humans have and I really believe it's a contributing factor to the image of God within us because we all have anticipation for God. We all do. Everybody does. Now lots of people will deny it and lots of people we know will suppress that truth in unrighteousness for they don't want nothing to do with it. But the truth of the matter is, is there is within us an anticipation. And what I hope and pray will happen is this desire for something to be fulfilled and joy in the anticipation of that event's coming will be what Advent is for us this year. How many of you have ever done Advent services before? Okay, so not even half the people maybe. That's fine. That's good. What we are doing is we are focusing our attention singularly on Jesus Christ. And scoping out from there, we're focusing on the great divine plan and purpose of God in the glorification of himself through the redemption of his people. Okay? We're focusing pinpoint laser-like accuracy on Jesus Christ. And as we look at Jesus Christ, what we hope to find and hope to see is that out from there, we see the grandeur and greatness of God Almighty. And in that, his plan and purpose of glorifying himself through the salvation of his people in Jesus Christ. If that don't excite you, man, I don't know what I'm going to do. Because this is hot dog stuff right here. Jesus, are you kidding me? Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, my friend. He called me that. Did you know that? John chapter 15. I don't longer, it's tongue tied. I don't no longer, that's not with the right phrase either. But anyways, you get it. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master's doing. Instead, I now call you friends. I love Jesus. Jesus is the great savior of my soul. Jesus is my hero. Jesus is my king. He is my priest. He is truly, truly the object of my worship and affection. And good night, I hope he's yours too. Because there is nothing, no nothing, no nothing, no nothing greater than Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. In this text, in Philippians chapter 2, we find contained within Paul's words of 
uh, admonition, of encouragement, of um, exhortation. Remember, Philippians was written to the church at Philippi. Now, that was a church that Paul founded, one of the first ones in Europe. And when he went there, it was the very first place where there was actually, the first convert was a woman, Lydia. Her um, workers or employees, they cast that demon out of that, that gal who was prophesying things. And so the church started from a very interesting place. The woman was the first convert. And they cast out a demon out of this woman who was saying all manner of weirdness. Then they're thrown in jail. And then the jails open up, you remember. And Paul and Silas, they don't go, hot dog, I'm running out. Instead, they stay there and they sing praises to Jesus. They're singing hymns. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Maybe. That's what we just sang. So maybe they probably sang a different version of that in Greek. And I'm not savvy, so I'm not even going to try. And in the midst of that, that was so radical. Even the prisoners stayed in their cells. How crazy is that? The jailer comes in. Of course, he's terrified because he knows if a prisoner escapes on his watch, he will get to the punishment that was given to that prisoner. And so who knows? Death, beatings, fine. I mean, all manner of things were going to befall him. And so he pulls out his own sword, remember? And he's about to fall on it. And he, Paul goes, wait, 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 stop. We're all still here. And he shares them the gospel. And then they all get saved. This is a crazy church. A woman, first thing, now that doesn't sound radical to us in our modern 21st century sensibilities, right? But in Bible days, that's crazy talk. That God would first come and save a woman of all people? I mean, remember, you know that there were certain prayers that were prayed about women, right? Thank you, Lord, that I am not a woman, a Gentile, or a dog. That was a legit prayer people prayed. And then a girl who gets saved in a demon castle. And then a whole prison full of prisoners. And then their guard. <laughs> That's the church of Philippi and how it started. Paul got run out of town. And so a ways down the road, he sent Timothy back with an epistle to see how things were going. And to kind of make sure things were going even keeled. Because he heard there was some division and some strife. And some disagreements going on within the church. You can imagine that. Because people are people no matter where they are. And so he writes these words of encouragement. Listen to what he says. Anything, have you received any encouragement from Christ? Any comfort from love? Any participation in the spirit? Any affection or sympathy then complete my joy by being in you. Have you experienced any of the rich benefits that have come from being united to Christ and being born again? Have you experienced those things? Then, beloved, have the same mind. Love one another. Be in full accord. Be in agreement with one another. Don't be selfish or ambitious or be conceited. Be humble and count people more significant than you. 
And don't only look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, he says that, and he says it to encourage unity within the church. And then right in the middle of this words of unity and admonition, it's like Paul just gets beside himself with love for Jesus. And it's like he's writing this, and he's like, and have this mind amongst yourself which is in Christ. And then he leans back in his chair, and he thinks, Christ. And he starts meditating and mulling over all the wonders that Christ is as a person, as a being. And he starts thinking about all these amazing truths that he knows about God, and therefore he knows about Jesus. And he gets caught up in this moment of praise. This is probably an early hymn within the church, most people would agree. And Paul writes this out here as he's caught up in the heavenlies because he wants to bring the church's mind out of themselves and into thinking about Christ and thinking about Christ within you. That is, if there's anything, what we're doing here in Advent. We are trying to take your minds off of yourselves. Take your minds off of the stuff going on around you. Take your minds off of all of the the willy and the nilly, all the plannings and preparations, and to focus you back on Jesus. That's what we're doing. That's what Paul does here. That's why we're starting here. And he starts with this, the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. God is big. When we start talking about the being and and the nature of God, we have the tendency to think of God like us, just really, really, really big. Right? We we tend to think of him in ways that we can wrap our minds around. We, we want an analogy that helps us understand God. And so when we talk about, for example, the existence and attributes of God, anybody read that book by Charnock? Okay, it's big. It's kind of more like a doorstop for most people than it is something they're going to read. But it's well worth it if you ever get the time you want to plow through a big, weighty book. And in that book, he divides the attributes of God. Attributes just means the the things that make up the being of God. Into, ready for some fancy words? Prepare to be dazzled. Communicable and incommunicable attributes of God. I love that for some 50 cent words. Just means this. Communicable means attributes that can be communicated into his creatures. Incommunicable attributes are those attributes of God that aren't communicated into his beings. What does that mean? Incommunicable attributes. That God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. None of us are omnipresent. We're just barely present. <laughs> we got one little spot where we're at, and that's all that we have. So we, are, we don't, it is very hard to, uh, to comprehend 
omnipresence of God, right? Or omniscience, right? The all-knowingness of God. We, we know stuff, but man, to know everything about everything all the time, even before everything existed, whew. You start thinking along those lines and it's very hard to wrap your mind around or to understand how could such a thing be? But that's not what we're necessarily wanting to look at. Because remember, Paul says, have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he's talking about an attribute that God has that we can have too. Here specifically, he's talking about humility. But let's talk about a couple of other ones first. Mercy. I can certainly exhibit mercy. And some of my kids are in the back here. And sometimes, I'm going to use you as an example, girls. And Lily says no. Well, sometimes they would get in trouble. I'm not going to pick one out. <laughs> and when they would get in trouble, I am not necessarily obligated in every single instance to measure out the penalty every single time. I do have the freedom to show mercy. And so sometimes mercy is shown. You get that as parents, right? You don't every single time, in every single way, always in exacting detail, discipline your kids the exact same way. Or reward them the exact same way. We show mercy. We have compassion. We love them. All of these things are attributes of God that we can understand because they have been communicated in some way to us. So, when we look at God, what we want to avoid is the idea that he's just bigger than us. He is other than us. He's different than us. He is some ways unanalogable. Uh, <laughs> he is without analogy. So when we come to the Trinity, right? For example, we're going to talk about... Yes, we're going to talk about the Father and the Son and their union together here in just a few minutes... And when we talk about the Trinity, oftentimes what we do is we'll give an analogy, right? You've heard these analogies before. God's like an apple. There's the peel, there's the stuff, and there's the pit, right? Or he's like fire, and there's the flame, and there's heat, and there's light, and you can't separate the ones. Or like a little clover, and of course, all of those, if you press them, lead to heresy, because all of those break down because they're all analogies. And what they are is a kind of sort of way for us to mentally grasp how God can be one being and yet exist in three co-eternal persons. But that's clearly what scripture teaches. And the pre-existence of Christ leads us right down that road. And so we need to go there. It behooves us to go there. Verse 6, who, though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, we could write whole books on that just little bit right there. But let's begin back up with Jesus Christ who was in the form of God. I will unequivocally and unashamedly state that Jesus is God. 
I have no worries about that. I have no qualms about it. And I also have no reason to say he's anything other than God. He is not just Unitarian in his existence, though, meaning that there is one Unitarian God and he has either manifested himself in different ways, like Jesus or the Spirit or the Father, or that he is somehow a unity in oneness of being and every once in a while a being shows up that kind of gets a little plug from him or something along those lines, a special prophet or some kind of anointing. Jesus is God every bit as much as the Father is God, every bit as much as the Holy Spirit is God. In John chapter 17, Jesus, interestingly enough, once he has emptied himself and he had taken on the form of flesh, which we're going to get to in a minute, he prays to the Father. And he prays to the Father a prayer that nobody else can pray unless they are eternal beings united with the Father. It just doesn't make sense in any other way, shape, or form. He says these words. Uh, Let's start in verse 4. I glorified you on earth, he's praying to the Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, a couple of things here. Number one, it won't do to say Jesus Christ was the first creation and then there, from there everything was created through him and while he is not the same as the Father, he's super duper cool and probably the best in all creation. Because here he says and he prays And it would be blasphemous if the Trinity weren't a true doctrine. He prays, Lord, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you. They had a glory together as they coexisted. The Bible quite clearly in the pages of the Old Testament, Isaiah and many places say, I am God, I give my glory to no other, none. And yet here Jesus is praying that he would have the glory that he had when he pre-existed with the Father. So here we see back in Isaiah, God is one. He gives his glory to no other. And yet here Jesus prays to the Father that they would have this glory once again once Jesus goes back to be with the Father. He was in the form of God. In 1 John chapter 1, it says, John speaking, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard and we have seen with our eyes, we looked upon, we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen, we heard, we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you that our joy may be full, may be complete, may be perfect, lacking nothing. Joy comes 
for the believer in the revelation of the Father and the Son being unified in eternity past, having eternal life in and amongst their own beings, existing without any need for anything else to exist, the doctrine of aseity. In fact, that right there is enough for what I think should be compelling for a lot of people who would deny God. There must be, let me just give you this, this bonus. I love giving out little extra credit jobbies. Here's one. If anything exists, and anything exists requires on something else for its existence, there must be something that doesn't require anything for its own existence for anything to exist. What does that mean? (laughs) If you exist and you breathe, (sighs) you exist and you eat, You exist and you live and move and you require other things for your existence. And in fact, if that's true of you and it's true of everything in this entire universe, right? Thermodynamics teaches us that everything is eventually breaking down and moving to an end. Therefore, everything requires something else for its existence. Namely, there must be a being that requires nothing for its existence for anything to exist. There you go. Bonus. Okay, moving on. He, Jesus Christ, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, literally to be held on to. Okay, so Christ in eternity past was co-equal with God, co-glorious with God, co-existent with the Father as God. See, I'm even getting my words messed up. That's how difficult it is when you start talking about the bigness of God. He co-existed with the Father, but he didn't count that co-glory and co-existence with him something to be held on to because there was a plan and a purpose that the Father and the Son and the Spirit came to by which they would redeem humanity. Now, we just looked at this when we went through the pastoral epistles, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it here. But in 1 Timothy chapter 1, it says, Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in the sufferings of the gospel by the power of God who called us and saved us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before time began, God, Father and the Son, Spirit's in there too, purposed, a people whom they would save. Christ came and secured that salvation, which is what we're going to look at here, and why he didn't hold equality or continued union in that same sense with the Father to be something to be held on to. And the Spirit comes in now and applies that salvation to each and every one of our lives. So, God, here, in Jesus Christ... He considered it not something to be held on to, but emptied himself. Now, that phrase has been confusing for a lot of people. When I first became a Christian, you hear the, again, these analogies. Someone told me, it's like a cop, right? 
He's a cop, but he's got a gun and he's got a badge, right? But, you know, he doesn't do that all the time. Sometimes he takes his badge off and puts his gun down. Now, dude's still a cop, but he don't have his gun and his badge. Uh, okay. <laughs> That's not, that, that can be helpful, but what it leads us to think is that Christ actually divested himself of something in deity so that he wasn't 100% man when he was here on this earth. And that's problematic for lots of reasons. Number one, and probably most importantly, is if our Savior, our mediator, wasn't an eternal being, then can he really have saved all peoples whom he intended to save in all times? If he is anything less than deity, then is he a complete and perfect savior? So what we're looking at here, when Jesus emptied himself, it tells us what it means. By taking the form of a servant. So it isn't as if he took off his gun and his badge. Instead, he put something else on, something else unique in all of the history of existence, namely human flesh. He became a man, a perfect man, a perfect man. Jesus Christ, rather than becoming a demigod, maintained his godliness. He maintained his knowledge. He maintained, even as it were, his presence. The Bible tells us in Colossians that he upholds everything by his power. So even while he was a man, he was doing these things. That's crazy. But yet he was also 100% man. He was hungry. It was a real temptation when Satan came to him and said, oh, you've been out here a long time, dude. Gosh, you've got to be hungry. Hey, look at those stones. That looks like a Dutch crunch roll if I've ever seen one. <laughs> How about you turn those stones into bread, Jesus, and just satisfy that hunger? I mean, come on. You've been out. That was a real temptation for Jesus. He was a real man. He slept. He wept. He walked. He got blisters on his feet, probably. He didn't just float along or something like that. He was in every way a real man. So much so that it said he had no form upon which to look at him. Meaning that he probably wasn't, as a man, easy on the eyes. Judas had to be the one to come up and kiss him because he wasn't just identifiable by saying, oh, it's the dude with the sweet hair. He looks like a shampoo model. That guy's the guy you get. It's not the guy with the high cheekbones and that nice jawline. You you know what I mean? None of that. Judas came to kiss him, to identify him because he wasn't readily identifiable. He was in every way just a regular man, except he was God Almighty in the flesh. In John chapter 3, right before the famous 316, Jesus in talking to Nicodemus, drops a train on him and says this in verse 11, John three eleven. Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. 
If, look, if I have told you of earthly things and you didn't believe it, how can you believe it if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus here, he says to Nicodemus and to the rest of us, if you don't understand the things that Jesus spoke about in earthly matters, how will you understand when he speaks about spiritual matters? And the spiritual matter he leads right into is that he descended from heaven and became a man, the son of man. In Matthew, it's the favorite moniker of Jesus. This son of man. So how did he empty himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men? God became flesh. The pre-existent, eternal, glorious son of God, there as one of the members of the almighty trinity, who flung everything into existence by the sheer word of his power, condescended to step down and not just have his words written in a book, but take on human flesh and become a man. Because good night, that's the only way we could be saved. That whoever believes in him might have eternal life. Luke 19.10 says that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus didn't come to just offer salvation to, oh, just the people. He came to actually secure salvation for those who were his. Being found in the form, verse 8, human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Now, death on the cross is a horrific thing. I thank God that he's not still on the cross, unlike our Anglican brothers here would have us believe as he's up there. But I thank God that he is not still on the cross. But he came here to die upon a cross. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, one of the earliest passages I memorized as a scripture here in chapter 12 says this, that therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside the weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us and run with endurance the race that is set before us. And how are we to do that? Again, it's kind of like Philippians here. He gives encouragement, he gives admonishment, and then he bases that admonishment back upon the person of Jesus Christ. And he concludes it with this way. We look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Christ came to secure that joy that was set before him. The joy that was set before Jesus Christ was the redemption of the people that the Father had ordained would be saved, And that those people, upon being saved, would be glorious trophies of God's grace. 
You see, all of redemptive history is bound up in God glorifying God and God glorifying God and God glorifying God and God glorifying God. And there's this inter-Trinitarian act of glorification and love that we are caught up in. And the joy that was set before Jesus was the redemption of a people that would be his own, that he would present back to the Father in his glorious heaven above with all joy, and then we would be a united family of God forever. This is a glorious, glorious truth that we find here, what Christ did. And what took, what did it take for him to do that? The cross. And he despised it. Can you, I, I, I can't imagine Christ coming down, taking on the form of a servant and humbly allowing his own creation to brutalize him the way that they did. To tear his body apart. For him to endure all of the pain that he went through. But it wasn't just that. Beloved, that elicits sympathy within us, and that preaches really well. But it wasn't his beaten body that saved us. It wasn't even him being pinned to that Roman tree that saved us. What saved us is the wages of sin is what? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And if we who deserve death and damnation for our sins are going to be saved then a perfect substitute has to die in our place. And that's what Christ did. You see, he endured the cross, despising the shame of that cross, in praying, Lord, if there's any other way to do this, let's go that way. But he did it and was obedient all the way to the point of death of a cross. Because this glorified the Father. He was in human form and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, because of his inter-Trinitarian submission, his inter-Trinitarian act of love, his inter-Trinitarian act of glory for God the Father and the Spirit and willingly giving himself up to glorify God the Father and to honor the Spirit and in doing so securing our salvation, God therefore has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. You see? They ordained this plan before time even began. The Father purposed it would take place. Christ came and humbly submitted himself to that Father's will so that the Father would be glorified, you see. And once the Father received that glory, he in turn glorifies the Son, Jesus Christ. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I, in preparing this in my own heart, have found myself caught up in anticipation and worship. I, I love Christmas. I like a tree, I like the lights, 
I like cider. I like hot chocolate. I, I like, I love everything about it. It warms my heart. But if that's all that it ever does, then beloved, I go to hell with a warm heart. I'm damned with some good feelings going on in my brain and some endorphins flowing through my body. That's tragic. That's cosmically tragic. That's infinitely tragic. If all Christmas does is evoke warm feelings or some kind of sentiment within you, then all you have is that and you have nothing more in this life or the next. That's as best as it gets. And beloved, that is sad. Beloved, the truth of the matter is is that what this ought to do is elicit within us worship of Jesus Christ. And my prayer is always the same, that you would walk out of these doors knowing Jesus better than you did when you came in. Why do I pray that? Because I want you to worship Jesus. I want you to know him and be known by him. I want you to love him and be loved by him. I want you to glorify his precious name and receive grace and mercy from him. I want you to be all kinds of nuts for Jesus. Because he saved us from ourselves, from our own sins. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. He owes us nothing. (laughs) But praise God, he did. Praise the Father. Praise the Son. Praise the Holy Spirit. All three in one for my redemption. As we come into this Advent season, I pray that you would begin to take, you know, this to heart, this to stock. And as we go through this time, enjoy all the trappings of Christmas, but allow those trappings to be means by which you worship God and not ends in and of themselves. Enjoy your family and your friends. Enjoy the giving and receiving of presents. Enjoy all of these things, but enjoy them all with the mindset, thank you, God, because if I don't have your coming, your advent, you, the pre-existent son of God who has ever lived and will ever live, come down and take upon human flesh so that you might save me from my sins, none of this means anything at all. Beloved, Jesus is glorious and he is the name that is above every name. And we willingly bow our knees. We willingly bow our hearts. We willingly rejoice and confess Jesus Christ is Lord, all to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this plan of redemption that you have set before us. It's so amazing to think about the fact that that you would condescend to come down and to save us in such a way. Lord, forgive us for all of the works that we attempt to do to try to earn this salvation in some way, shape, or form. We can't earn it. You did it all. We can't work for it. You died for us. You, the eternal Son, had to do this in our place or else we have no hope of salvation. But oh, the great hope. Lord, the great joy of salvation that we have in you is so blessed. I pray that it would be this great and joy-filling mindset that we have all throughout this holiday season, Lord. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.